0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 35. It's titled Investment Performance, What You Need to Know. I'm going to start focusing today on the significant drop in oil prices. Oil, as you know, has fallen over 40% since July. And, question, what triggered that decline? I don't know. And does anyone really know? No. The most recent data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration shows that global oil production increased 1.4% for the year ending August 2014. That's the most recent data available. The EIA is really the premier data statistical organization that researches oil production and supply throughout the globe. So they, they are, they're really much the premier source. But their historical data only goes through August in terms of production. So up 1.4% globally. In North America, oil production is up 7.5% year-over-year just because of all the expansion that is occurring in North Dakota and Texas that has really revolutionized oil in terms of—it's been a renaissance in in oil production in the U.S. due to the fracking, the horizontal drilling, et cetera. So if oil in North America is up 7.5%, that means oil production across the globe across the world is actually down slightly, and, and I, I'll link to the report in the show notes. You can calculate it yourself. I calculated it, and, and it shows a slight decline outside of North America. So is a 1.4% increase in oil sufficient to trigger a 40% decline in price? I wouldn't think so. So what about oil demand? Well, the most recent data from the EIA only goes through July when prices started falling, so it's hard to say demand is the cause. But if we were going to tell a plausible story, if somebody just said, why is oil falling or the oil price falling, plausible story would be because demand is falling. How would we determine that? Well, we're going to use basic economics. If supply is roughly the same and the price is falling, then it must be a significant drop-off in demand. Is that really true? Perhaps, but we, we don't know. I mean, is, is demand, if you look at the PMI data, the Purchaser Manager Indices data, it does not indicate necessarily that there is a significant drop-off in demand. So, so what is it? Well, how are oil prices set? Well they're set in by participants in the oil futures market. And so you have institutions, you have individuals, you have thousands uh, of, of, of these individuals and institutions that trade oil futures. They they trade what they think prices for futures are gonna or for oil is gonna be a month from now, several months from now. There's the spot price, which is today's price. Some of these participants are there to hedge the oil exposure. Others are speculators. I have bought oil futures in the past, and I would not recommend doing it. I don't—well, I can't say I'll never do it again, but my thesis at the time for buying oil futures was it was trading at $100 a barrel, and I thought it was going to go down. And what was my justification because I thought it was going to go down? I didn't have one. I guessed it was an edgy, i don't even say it was an educated guess so how are these all these participants in the futures market deciding where they think oil is going to be especially if the historical data demand data is only from july maybe there's a few other in in anecdotal reports but generally speaking there's always a lag with data and so if you're participating in the futures market you just you're making educated guess Guesses. So what is the right price for oil? Well, there isn't really a right price for oil. It's a function of all these participants in in the futures market who in reality don't have a clue what's going to happen. Whether the I've seen reports that next year the economy is going to continue to rebound. Or we're going to have global growth. We know that the supply of oil outside of North America uh, appears to have peaked and, and at least that's when you look at the production data supply outside of north america is hasn't increased in the past year, nor has it increased in in the past several years it's really in only North America. but we guess that's ultimately what these how oil prices are set now here's another phenomena about security prices. And here we're going to focus on oil, but it gets back to the topic of of today's show. If I took the price data on a a minute-by-minute basis and plotted it on a chart just to show, all right, here are the prices. Here's the price of oil, minute-by-minute. And if I did the same chart, I did it hour-by-hour, and a similar chart, I did it day by day. And I just, I had I had the dates on there. On the bottom axis, on the left axis, I had the price of oil. And it just shows, what you would see is spikes and drops. You would see that it, it is quite volatile. Now, that type of chart is what's called a fever chart. That's the technical term, I have no idea why. But that's generally when you're looking at Price trends over time, they're called fever charts. Now, if we erase the prices on the left axis and erased the dates on the bottom and removed all markings, so you don't have any context, all you see is this line bouncing around, and you looked at it and tried to compare the charts, maybe mix them up, You would not be able to tell the difference between which was the minute-by-minute chart and which was the hour-by-hour or the day-by-day. More so, let's do a different chart. Let's not plot the actual prices. Let's plot the relative change in prices. In other words, what was the percentage increase in price from one period to to the next? If you did that, the, what the chart would show is that periods of high volatility tend to clump together. You know, periods such as now where you have oil prices dropping and, and the day-to-day volatility and hour-to-hour has been very, very high. They, they are, are clumped together in certain periods of time. At some point in time, it's relatively smooth, but at other points, they're, they're much more jumpy. Now, oil prices and other security prices are fractals. And fractals is a term that Benoît Mandelbrot developed. He invented, he invented the concept. He discovered it back in the late 60s to mid 70s. And what a fractal fractal is, it's a geometric or mathematical pattern that repeats itself at every scale. And, and what, do, what do I mean by, by repeats itself? Well, let's look at an example of a fractal in nature. A spear of broccoli is a geometric fractal. And so a small piece of broccoli spear, just a small piece, if you have a, just take a little piece of broccoli, just a part of a spear, and magnify it, you'll see that it looks just like a big piece of broccoli. In other words, it's self-similar. The small objects that make up a large object, if those small objects are magnified, they look just like a large object. Other examples of a fractals would be trees, leaves, coastlines. The famous study on fractals that I, I think Benoit Mandelbrot did was the British coastline. And if you took a mile of coastline, an aerial photo of Britain, and compared it to 1,000 miles, well, let's say 500 miles, you would see it would be very, very difficult to... There wouldn't be exact replicas, but they would be very, very close. Statistically, the proportion of bays and inlets to headlands would be about the same, irrespective of the length of the, ter- of the terrain. So that's what a, a fractal is. So a fractal is a self-similar pattern that if you irrespective of the scale if you magnify it it looks the same that's the way security prices are the minute by minute chart looks very similar to the hour by hour chart and the day by day chart and and that's just the nature of security prices now maybe that's just interesting. Why does that matter in terms of what you need to know about investment returns and investment performance? It just seems like a novelty, except for the fact that f- fractals follow what is known as a power law. And what a power law is, and, and I am not a mathematician, and and so... And conveying math on a personal finance show audio is very, very difficult to do. So we're not, we're not going to do math formulas here. One, because I wouldn't be able to explain them very, very well. But we need to understand the concepts of what a power law is because fractals follow a power law. And a power law is something follows a power law if the least— frequently occurring elements have the greatest impact and the most frequently occurring elements have the least impact an example of a parallel is the pareto principle which you might have heard of as the 80/20 rule which states that roughly 80% of the effects comes from 20% of of the causes and and that's and there's power laws throughout the world. How wealth is distributed follows a power law. If you look at the wealth of Bill Gates and the other billionaires, their level of wealth is so much greater than than everyone else in terms of, you know, the impact of their wealth is so much greater. And so you, you have fewer observations. Some The few observations have the largest impact. In this case, the The wealth of Bill Gates just towers over the wealth of everyone else. Now, a power law is—so there's a functional relationship between two quantities, and and this is what's unique about power laws. So by a functional relationship, in other words, one quantity varies as a power of another. And by power, I meant if you square something— or you take it to the third, that's taking it to the power, and, and that's as complicated as math as we're going to get. But the, the point is there's, there is a relationship between the, op- the cause and the effect that is based on taking that cause to some power or to the inverse power. Now, an example would be gravity. Gravity weakens by the inverse power of two with the distance it goes. So if a spaceship doubles its distance from the earth, the gravitational pull falls to a fourth of its original value. So the far you, farther you go, it's not a linear relationship. In other words, you go out some distance it doesn't fall by that amount of distance. It falls by the power. So it's magnified. And there's this there's this consistency among the observations. Let me give you another example of a power law that the Benoit Mandelbrot, and the book that I'm referring to, and you can read more about this, it's called Misbehaviors of Markets, and he talks about fractals, he talks about power laws, particularly as they relate to security prices, because he did some of the the original work, I think he originally focused on on cotton prices, and this was before he had even developed the this concept of fractals. He just observed cotton prices over time and was fascinated how minute-by-minute prices could not be distinguished from hour-to-hour or day-by-day. So, a ZIPF law, Z-I-P-F, states that given some corpus of natural language language utterances, and, and I'm quoting this from a... I think I'm quoting this from Wikipedia, so I'll link to it. But I I want to get this right. So when I talk about a corpus of natural language, let's say the example they give is the Brown Corpus of American English Text, which I can only presume is a series of a bunch of books and novels. And the Zipf Law is a power law. And here, here's, the, here's the law. The frequency of any word is inversely proportional to its rank in the frequency table. Thus, the most frequent word will occur approximately twice as often as the second most frequent word, three times as often as the third most frequent word. For example, in this brown corpus of American English text, the word the is the most frequently occurring word and by itself accounts for nearly 7% of all word occurrences, so roughly 70,000 out of a million. And then the second place word of accounts for slightly over 3.5% of the occurrences, and then followed by and. So 135 vocabulary words make up over half the brown corpus. So there's a power law there where the the, the most f- frequently occurring words make up the bulk uh, of the corpus, and, and it follows, and, it's, there, and there's a relationship between the, the, the first most frequent word and the second most frequent word, and the third on it. It's all based on taking something to some power. That might be kind of confusing, but power laws are fascinating because, just intuitively, if you look at, I've mentioned wealth distribution. Look about movies, the way movies today, the as the biggest blockbuster of movies make up. There's only a few of those, but they make up the vast majority of movie revenues. Books are the same way. The, this concept that Chris Anderson developed might have been almost a decade ago called the long tail. The long tail is a phenomena of power laws because a few observations make up the most, you know, a few of the causes produce the most effect. You also then you have a lot of the of the causes that kind of stream out into this long, long tail. It's kind of a a swooping down if you looked at it as a graph. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, what does this have to do with security prices? Well, particularly with oil. Well, a few amount of days or of hours in minutes account for the vast majority of, of the return. That follows a power law. So you can have five years' worth of oil price gains wiped out in four months, as we've seen this year. And most of that price drop occurred within a few days where you have it move 4 or 5%. That's what you need to know about investment returns. They follow power laws. They're fractals. Now, what does modern portfolio theory suggest or efficient market, or a random walk, that security prices don't follow power laws. In other words, that they don't clump together, that you don't have these extreme elements that account for the bulk of the return. That's the theory. In practice, it does. And that's why this, this looking at oil prices is so fascinating, because it's just a great example how an extreme event is occurring, and you're seeing five years' worth of returns wiped out in three to four months. But why, why, why are security prices like that? Well, modern portfolio theory says they shouldn't be like that because investors are rational. But if we look at what investors are really like, why the reason why security prices follow power laws and clump together with periods of volatility, smack together with the least a few observations accounting for the most of the return, both positive and negative, is because of investor psychologies. Investors panic and investors get exuberant. At times, they follow what other investors are doing. In other words, in a kind of a normalized period in lower volatility- Investors might have different opinions, but when things start getting choppy, sometimes investors have self-doubt. Maybe I really don't know what's going on, but maybe this expert does or this person does. And so they start stop following their own beliefs and they start to follow the crowd, and that can cause what's known as an information cascade. Essentially, herd behavior, when when you just have people stop following what they think, looking at others to see what they're doing, those people are doing the same thing, and suddenly you have this herd behavior that can take prices down sharply and then reverse again. And that's just the psychology of how markets work. You have this crowd behavior, and it shows up mathematically in investment returns as power laws, as fractals, and that's the math behind it. The longer I invest and the more years I do it, and I, I'm approaching 20 years, I realize that investor psychology is the main driver of investment returns. And it shows up in momentum when you have Long-term momentum in one direction or another, that's investor psychology. And there's ways to make money following momentum strategies. Value, something under value, is also investor psychology, where investors believe bad things will go on indefinitely. Fear and greed are signs of investor psychology, the ferocity with which investors are buying. In other words, what is the volume of the stocks going up versus the volume of the stocks going down? In terms of the economy, PMI data, purchase of managers' managers indices, something that I follow, that's based on investor or business surveys, the psychology of business, if they think things are going well or if they think things are not going well. That is all investor psychology, and that's what drives markets. So what do you do when an inv- you have an investment or exposure to an asset class, and it's exhibiting this information cascade, this downward momentum where it's dropping, plummeting, really? What do you do? Depends on your investment strategy. If you're a buy-and-hold investor, you ride out the storm. You, ride, you stay and you keep your hands on the grip of that roller coaster, and you ride it out. If you are an investor that likes to adjust your market exposure based on market conditions, you get out of the way. You 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 don't sit and watch things continue to drop when they have negative momentum, particularly if the... Prime, the return is driven almost exclusively by investor psychology. With oil prices, there is, it's, it's, it's set by the futures market. There is no income component to an oil future. It's, the price is based on participants in that market's guesses. And so it is heavily exposed to information cascade, fear, etc. Now, What about other asset types? Let's look at oil, right? There are are assets that are being impacted by the drop in oil. Non-investment-grade bonds, for example. I have a very small amount of exposure to non-investment-grade bonds. and, And there's, as part of a diversified fixed income portfolio and holding, and they're being impacted because the yield on energy-related high-yield bonds, because a lot of energy companies went out and borrowed a lot of money for all this oil capital investment, that that yield has gone up, and defaults are likely to go up if oil prices stay at these low levels. And so there's some collateral damage, and so you step back and say, all right, do I want to continue this exposure? Has, it, has the investment thesis changed, and, and do I you just want to look at your exposure. In my case, I'm continuing to hold those non-investment grade bonds, although they are down. Master Limited Partnership is another asset class that that has been lumped in with oil. And I've done a number of audio lessons and write-ups on Master Limited Partnerships on the Money for the Rest of Us hub at moneyfortherestofushub.com. And, and there, I mean, that's another... Collateral damage, and I've looked at it and stepped back and said, No, I'm going to continue to hold these asset types because they are not directly exposed to oil, even though they are being lumped into that same category. And so that's what you do when, when you have that negative momentum. Sometimes you got to get out or you reduce your exposure, particularly if you can't figure out what's going on or, or your investment thesis is violated. I really like parallels, I think they're fascinating. I, I've given some thought into what extent to, can we apply power laws to our own lives. And many, many years ago, probably not that many, but I guess late 90s, maybe Richard Koch, it's K-O-C-H, wrote a book called The 80-20, I think it was called The 80-20 Rule, but he described kind of applying that power law in your own life where you want to focus your efforts in your life on those things, those activities that have the greatest impact. Michael Porter, the great strategist, always talked about strategy is about choosing activities and how those activities link together, and it's just as important what we don't choose. We can't choose everything. So if we're following a power law in our own life. We want to choose, you know, what are those critical activities that can have the greatest impact on our life? Those causes that have the greatest effect. Another example of power law. I have something for you. I, when I was going to really do the, start to do this episode, I wanted to talk about, I've, I've mentioned investment returns in the past episodes, but I, I haven't really talked about how do you calculate your investment return in your own portfolio. And, and I decided, nah, I don't really want to talk about it because it doesn't make for an exciting episode. So instead, what I did for those members of or those that are on my insider's guide that signed up at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.net, they got this sent to them today when the podcast is released. It's a spreadsheet. It's a link to a spreadsheet and video that you can watch. You can download the spreadsheet and you can look at how to calculate what's known as a time-weighted return and gives a little bit about a theory. And then you can use that to calculate, that spreadsheet, to calculate your own performance of your portfolio over time. Because I think it's important to, to look at what returns are you earning. The, the whole Mind the Gap spreadsheet that I discussed a couple weeks ago is based on knowing what the investment return is. And so here's a way to calculate a time-weighted investment return and watch a video about it. Here's how to get it. You can get it two ways. One, you can go to moneyfortherestofus.net and you can sign up for my Insider's Guide. That's where I'll email the show notes for episodes that are coming up. I answer listeners' questions and I'll email you the link to download this spreadsheet and watch the video. Your other option is go ahead and go to moneyfortherestofushub.com forward slash performance And there you'll you'll have a page, you'll go and go directly to the link and you can see the download the spreadsheet, download the video, that's free. So that's money for the dot com forward slash performance. Final thing that I wanted to share with you on the hub, some of the things that we've talked about recently was this whole idea of oil, more information on why oil is dropping, how stocks have performed relative. To oil when oil has dropped over 30%. I discussed some recent changes I've made to my equity portfolio to take advantage of seasonality and, and some of the changes I'm making there. We, the Money for the Rest of Us Plus episode for episode 34 talked about what do you do when your investments are falling and what can you do to sort of fight, get rid of that pain, that anxiety you feel when stocks are falling. And also, there's a recent audio lesson on taxes and and how should you or should you adjust your investment portfolio strategy based on taxes and things you can do there. So that's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Again, you can sign up for my insider's guide at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I share with you in this show is for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply education on money, investing, and the economy. If you have any questions, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. I'm also on Twitter at JD Stein. Have a great week.